All right, if you would, turn in your Bibles. We'll head into the sermon to Matthew chapter 16. We'll be in Matthew chapter 16, uh, starting in verse 13. We are concluding our Bible basics series this morning, um, asking the question, what is the church? So, uh, let me pray. Let me pray for us. Let me pray for our church. Let's pray for Waco. Let's pray for our nation. Let's pray for the world. Um, as I pray, pray for those burdens you have, those burdens that people in your life have that you are carrying with them. Um, pray. Uh, let's pray, and then we'll head into God's word. Father, we thank you that we can run to you in faith. Thank you that we can run to you in confidence because of Jesus and his righteousness given to us and counted to us. And so, God, we come to you with our burdens. We come to you with the things that weigh us down. We come to you with the things that worry us. We come to you with the things that we are afraid of and that are scaring us. God, we unload all of that to you. You are the God who carries our burdens. You're the God of all comfort, and so we pray for comfort. I pray right now for those of us who, who can't even imagine being comforted in their pain right now, that they would taste comfort just in speaking to you, just in knowing that they can talk to you because of Jesus, and in Jesus' name, they can talk to you and be heard. And so, God, give comfort. Lord, we pray for healing, physical healing, for those among us who need it. God, we pray for um, healing and restoration in our souls, as we all need it. Lord, we pray that your gospel would be loud and clear this morning throughout churches all around Waco that your gospel would be preached, it would be clear, and it would be good news and heard as good news to thousands here in Waco and across the world. Jesus, we pray that you would uh, lead our city to you, you would lead our nation to you and this world to you to do and to be what, what it's all made to be and to do, and that's to know you, to have life with you, and to worship you. God, do this by the power of your gospel. Do this by the proclamation of the gospel as your church and as your people. Proclaim it and announce it again and again. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, on October 3rd, 2009, not too long ago, uh, about 400 um, Taliban soldiers waged war against 53 American soldiers at an outpost called Combat Outpost Keating. This was in Afghanistan during the war in Afghanistan. Uh, October 3rd, this uh, battle that uh, went on for about two days uh, is known as the Battle of Kamdesh. It lasted about two days. Eight American soldiers died. Two were given the Medal of Honor. Uh, it was one of the bloodiest, if not the most bloody uh, engagements of the Afghanistan uh, war. What was unique about it was that in 2006, about three years prior, the army 
had begun establishing outposts in northern Afghanistan uh, to promote counterinsurgency, uh, to build relationships with the local people, to try to team up with the locals to push back and stop terrorism. Um, what was very unique about Outpost Keating uh, was that it was in this remote valley in northern Afghanistan um, uh, at the base of mountains. Uh, it was surrounded by uh, mountains. Now, I'm no soldier and don't understand war, but I know I'm pretty confident that you want the high ground okay, in any battle. And this was, this was a huge problem. And it was very odd from what I've seen and read to everyone who had to be stationed there and be there and have since thought about it. How wild was it that this uh, American outpost was put at the base of these mountains surrounded um, by mountains? So you have this small group of soldiers that daily, daily, just doing their daily jobs, walking around, were just looking at these massive mountains uh, surrounding them. The enemy had an incredible perspective on Outpost Keating and, and the 50 or so soldiers just walking around day to day. Um, and so it was normal for them to daily or, or at least weekly come under sniper fire as the enemy would just take shots at the camp and at the soldiers constantly because they were just hidden up in the mountains with a great perspective looking down on them. Now, the mountains, these mountains were the strength and power of the enemy, as you can imagine. The mountains were the strength and power of the enemy. And you can imagine even yourself, if you were there, you would look up at these mountains and you would just know that's the strength of the enemy right now. That's the power of the enemy um, over us that we are, that we're fighting. In a sense, the mountains held the Americans captive, in a sense. In a sense, they were this dominating force over outpost Keating, this intimidating power all around them. The American perspective in outpost Keating at the base of these mountains was this inside looking out perspective, as the enemy had this outside looking in perspective. They had to wonder, with all of their bravery, these soldiers that had to be there and had to survive there, with all their bravery, they had to wonder, they had to fear, they had to doubt at times, will we get out of here alive? Will I get out of here alive? Will I ever get through these mountains? Or will these mountains prevail over me? Put yourself in their shoes. Put yourself in their shoes, surrounded by hundreds of the enemy, having the high ground with these, these thick walls surrounding you. Put yourself in, in their shoes this morning because if you do, if you can put yourself in that perspective, put yourself in their shoes, you'll get a good idea of what the church is. In Matthew 16, in our text this morning, the word church is first used in the Bible. It's the first instance that we see the word church used in the Bible. And so we're going to answer, this whole sermon is going to answer, what is the church? I'm not going to be able to say everything I could say about the church, but we're going to get to try to get to the heart of it. What is the church? We're going to do that. We're going to put that definition together brick by brick, piece by piece. So if you would, let's stand and read Matthew 16. We're going to read verses 13 uh, to 18. 
Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And we're going to stop there. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, you may be seated. All right, as we get into it, let's look at uh, verse 13, and let's answer what is the church. Look at what the text says in verse 13. Jesus shows up to a certain area, Caesarea Philippi. He asks his disciples, who, who do people say that I am? What is the word on the street about what people are saying about me and who I am? And they say this in verse 14. We're getting lots of different answers, Jesus. Some are saying John the Baptist is back from the dead, and that's who you are. Others say Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Um, there were all these different ideas about who Jesus was, and there was some Jewish expectation among God's people that Elijah would come back or a great prophet of old uh, would one day return. But the point here is that people are just getting it wrong. They're just getting Jesus wrong. Even God's own people, Israel, they're getting Jesus wrong. And the world is getting Jesus wrong. But this question, this first question, who do people say that I am, really ends up feeling like a setup by Jesus. Because then he quickly asks the follow-up in verse 15. Look at verse 15. He quickly moves to, I think, the real question. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? This is a central question in all four Gospels that begin your New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? It's a central question that the Gospels are uh, asking and answering and even asking you as you read the Bible. Who do you say that Jesus is? The world is is getting Jesus wrong. The disciples, if you read the Gospels, are often getting Jesus wrong. It's not until after his resurrection that the lights seem to turn on for them. But we get a different taste in terms of their understanding of Jesus here. And of all people, Peter, of all people, nails it. Jesus says, who do you say that I am? In verse 16, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He nails it. Christ, what is Peter saying when he says you are the Christ? He's saying you are the Messiah. You are the one that the Old Testament has been looking for, pointing to, um, prophesying about, saying this one is going to come that is going to deliver God's people, rescue God's people, redeem God's people, sit on King David's throne forever. There's this one coming. If you go back all the way to Genesis 3, there's this one coming that's going to that's gonna, uh, uh, stomp on the head of the serpent. There's this one coming. And so when Peter says, you're the Christ, he says, you're the one. You're not just the return of a great prophet. You're the prophet. You're the priest. You're the king forever and ever. That's who, that's who you are. You are the savior that is here to set the captives free. 
that we have been looking for for a very long time. And he says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Um, You are the Messiah, you are the Savior, and you are God. Who can speak to the winds and the waves and calm them? Who can cast out demons? Who can multiply bread and fish? Just think of all the experiences the disciples had. Who can say, I want to cross that lake, no boat needed? Who can do that? The Messiah, who is the Son of the living God, divine. God himself in the flesh. Peter nails it. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And here, Peter confesses and proclaims and announces the heart of Christianity. Like this morning, if you're here and you're like, my friend invited me, I came, didn't want to. What is Christianity all about? What is this? Why are you guys here? This is so weird. What's it all about? Peter just told us. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Uh, One of my favorite theologians, James Montgomery Boyce, commenting on this verse and what Peter says, that Christianity is Christ. Jesus, the heart of Christianity, the heart of the Bible. It's all about Jesus. So let's start our definition here. So what is the church? What is the church? It's a community of people centered on and revolving around Jesus. Whatever the church is, and however else that definition might build this morning, it is a community of people centered on and revolving around Jesus as the one whom the whole Bible is all about. The Savior who is God in the flesh, fully God, fully man, who's come to set the captives free and deliver and rescue God's people. The church is not principally about you or me. Uh, It is not centrally, principally about your life or your love for God or your love for other people or mission trips uh, to the other side of the world or you evangelizing or any other vision statement that sometimes churches might come up with. Those, though those are all good things. The church is about Jesus. What is Redeemer all about? What's our vision statement? Peter just gave us a great vision statement. What's your mission statement here at Redeemer? Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. So whatever we're doing and whoever we are and whatever we're about, that's our anchor. That's our center point. Everything is going to revolve around and center on him. Now listen to Jesus' affirmation and his support and his praise for what Peter uh, just said. Look at verse 17. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon bar Jonah. He's just saying Simon, son of Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Peter, you have clearly been blessed by God because you didn't realize this on your own. And if we know Peter, and if Peter knows himself, he'd probably say, that's definitely true. You have been blessed by God because flesh and blood is not coming to this conclusion on their own. Flesh and blood just meaning meaning us on our own, people on their own, apart from God. No, they're saying, no, I think you're a prophet. I think maybe John the Baptist. We don't know who you are. We don't know. We don't know what kind of people walk on water. We don't know what's going on here, right? So he says, you have been blessed by God. This has been revealed by God. Now, what we have to understand here is that the point here is not just that Peter intellectually gets Jesus right. The fuller reality of what is going on here and what is so 
of God is that is belief in Jesus, trust in him. I mean, if you read the Gospels, sometimes the demons get it right, more right than the disciples or than other people. The demons are like, you're God. What are you going to do with me? But they don't trust him. So what is so valuable here and what is of greatest importance is not merely intellectual accuracy, though you have to have that. It is faith. You're the Christ, the son of the living God, and we are trusting in you. You have the words of life. To whom else could we go? And this comes from God. This faith, this understanding of who Jesus is, and not just intellectual understanding, but faith in him, trust in him. Blessed are you. This has been revealed to you by God himself. God is doing this Work. I've always loved how Paul describes his own testimony of how he came to know Jesus in Galatians. You don't have to turn there. But Paul says this about how he came to faith. He says that God set me apart before I was born. And then God called me by his grace. And I love this. And he was pleased to reveal his son to me. Paul says, at a certain time in my life, because I was called before I was born or set apart before I was born, I was then called by grace and God revealed Jesus to me. And, and, and think about it. Paul knew who Jesus was intellectually. He had intellectual knowledge, but, but then it, it came home to him. A, a better understanding of who Jesus was, biblically speaking, and a trust in him. If, if you're a Christian, that is your story. That is your testimony this morning. Forever you can say, I was set apart before I was born. I was called by his grace and God was delighted and pleased to reveal Jesus to me. Thank God. So what is the church? What is the church? Let's keep building. It's a community of people revolving around Jesus, trusting him as their savior, all because God himself called them by grace to faith. We are here not because we thought up some odd religious activity to do on Sunday morning. We are here because God in heaven has called you to himself. I mean, how do we start every worship service, y'all, with a call to worship? God calls us to himself by grace and by mercy. Now, in our text, we come to the first mention of the word church in the Bible, verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. Now, if you know anything about this text, you know the massive debates that swirl around this verse, and what is the rock? And if if you by massive debate, what I mean is if you go one way, you get a pope. And if you go another way, welcome to church, okay? Um, There's massive debate regarding what is the rock. He says, and you are Peter, and on this rock, what is the rock, okay? Is it, this is how it commonly goes, is it Peter? Is the rock Peter? Or is the rock his proclamation of who Jesus is? Remember, this text is centering on who do you say that I am. It's centering on that. So is it Peter or is it his proclamation of who Jesus is? Here's my answer and I'll tell you why. Yes. Here's the key. I think this is the key. 
Look at what Jesus does when he does this really odd thing. And he says, and I tell you, you are Peter. Never in my life, when I'm talking to Brenna or one of my boys or friends in the middle of a conversation, we're talking about, I don't know, hey, where do we want to go to lunch, yada, yada, and you are Brenna. Isn't that odd? Peter knows who he is. Peter knows his name. Sometimes it would seem like he might not know his name, but he does. He knows his name. Jesus knows his name. Why does he go, and I tell you, you are Peter? That's odd, and I think it's the key to interpreting this verse. Peter's Greek name is almost identical to the Greek word for what? Rock. It's almost identical. Petros and Petra. His Aramaic name, they wrote in Greek. The New Testament is written in Greek, but they spoke Aramaic. His Aramaic name is the same as rock. Hey, Peter. Hey, rock. Okay? So you get that. You get his names. I think when Jesus says, you are Peter, he's doing what is obvious, what is right there in front of us. Hey, Peter, you are Peter. You are rock. Right? I mean, some of you maybe have named your kids like a name that means like lion or tiger, you know? And you did that because you're like, I want them to be a lion, you know? I want them to be a, a tiger. You are Peter. He's emphasizing his name. He's emphasizing the, the striking commonality between his Greek names and then the fact that his Aramaic name is the same as rock. I think the rock is Peter, but not in a strange popish way, Okay. Not in a strange, popish way. I think he means you are the rock in the same way, and he's talking in the same way that Ephesians 2 talks. You don't have to turn there, but listen to Ephesians 2 when it talks about the church. Ephesians 2 says this, the church is, quote, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So Ephesians 2 says the church is built on the, on, the, on the apostles and prophets. Does that mean they're the pope? No. But it says it's built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. I think Jesus is doing the same thing that Ephesians is doing. I'm going to build my church on you, Peter. I'm going to build my church on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Meaning this, the church is built by the power of the gospel that needs human preachers, does it not? Doesn't Romans say how could people be saved by the gospel? How could the church be built by the gospel if there's no one to go preach? So God, in his great design, said, I'm going to build my church, and I'm going to start with this small group of men. And they're going to preach the gospel, and the church is going to be built. So that's what I think Jesus is here saying. No different than we might say 20-some years ago, Jeff Hatton planted and built Redeemer. Are we saying that he's our pope? Are we just saying God used a human to preach the gospel, which is the power of God for salvation, which built the church? Right? And yes, ultimately, the church is built on who? Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. Okay? So what is the church? Let's add to this. It's a community of people revolving around Jesus, trusting him as their Savior, all because God himself called them by grace to faith in Jesus through the announcement of the good news. 
through the announcement and proclamation of the gospel that started in the most full new covenant way with a, with a ragamuffin team of disciples and apostles. All right, what does this have to do? What does this all have to do with outpost Keating where we started? Look at verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. As though we thought we got through a difficult interpretive task, here we go. What are we talking about regarding the gates of hell? Hell, or Hades, is talking about the realm of the dead. And a common Jewish way of talking about death at the time was to say that someone passed through the gates of hell. Um, Hell or Hades or the realm of the dead is here illustrated, imaged like a city with gates. And gates, this this is because the gates of a city were its power for the most obvious reason. Weak gates let the enemy come in, plunder, and attack. Strong gates kept the enemy out, bought time for counterattack. So the gates of a city represented its strength, represented its might. But what does it mean that the gates of the realm of the dead are not going to prevail? What does that mean? There's one easy interpretation that we can nix right away, and that's that the gates of Hades are used, Hades and hell being uh, interchangeable, the gates of hell are used as like weapons of warfare as they attack the church, right? Like when someone wants to lodge an attack and go on the attack, they don't say, hey, get the guns and also take the gates off the hinges. Let's bring those two to attack. Follow me? So he's not saying the gates are going to break when they take them to attack. He's not saying that we are dealing with passing through gates. The question is, is the perspective outside looking in or is it inside looking out? That's the question. We're dealing with, with passing through gates and gates prevailing or not in what they're designed to do. The question is, outside looking in perspective or inside looking out? One reasonable interpretation, and I find it, it's very reasonable, um, is that the church is here, Jesus is saying, attacking hell. That the church is on the offensive, attacking the realm of the dead, and good news, the gates won't prevail. The church will win. Very reasonable interpretation. Very true, the church does win. Jesus wins, right? Very, uh, very reasonable, very true. Um, I think it's saying something different in light of the whole Bible. This is what I mean. When the Bible, when you consider how the Bible treats the realm of the dead, it gives a different perspective than that, more often than not, if not every time. Often when it's talking about the realm of the dead, the perspective is far more inside out. Inside looking out. In other words, can anyone, again and again, the Bible deals with the realm of the dead or Sheol. Have you ever come across that word in the Old Testament, Sheol? You're like, where is Sheol? Or Hades or hell, all of this being the realm of the dead. The perspective is often this. Can I ever, could anyone ever escape Sheol? Can you escape the realm of the dead if you go there? It's always, almost always, if not always, inside looking out. Can you escape the realm of the dead? 
Uh, the realm of the dead, Sheol, Hades is seen as this ensnaring, tie you up, wrap you in cords, hold you forever kind of realm. It's often talked about that. Listen to these verses. The teaching of the wise is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. Or the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. This inside looking out, death trying to ensnare you and tie you and keep you and hold you captive. Don't let it take you there. Don't go there. And if you do, could anyone ever escape and get out alive? It holds you captive. And this realm has begun to reach into and intertwine with our own world lest we think we have our world in this completely separate realm of the dead over here. It's not that simple. Listen to these verses from the Psalms. One psalmist says, the cords of Sheol entangled me. This is someone who's alive, like me and you, saying the cords of Sheol began to entangle me. The snares of death confronted me. Or this, O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. There's this picture of the realm of the dead in the Bible that it is, that it is trying to fully and finally ensnare you, tie you up, drag you down where there's no escape, full, final, forever. Such that the psalmist sometimes say, I was getting ensnared and you rescued me. I felt the cords of death start to wrap around me, but you delivered me and you, you rescued me. Again, it's this inside looking out perspective. I was beginning to be held captive under the power of sin and under the power of death, but you rescued me. Now here you may say, um, Colin, I've never been dead. I've never felt that. Okay, Colossians 1 says this about Christians. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Everyone was born in the domain of darkness, in the domain of the realm of the dead. To get more specific, Ephesians 2 says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the prince of the power of the air. You know who the prince of the power of the air is? Satan himself, as he lures around like a lion looking for people to devour. I know our world doesn't seem like it, but darkness, the domain of darkness is among us. Inside, looking out, living in the, in the domain of the realm of the dead already. And what's worse is that we willingly went there. In our sin, we willingly went to the realm of the dead. We willingly turned our back on the God of life. And when you turn your back on the God of life, you're left with darkness and death. It's not neutral. We willingly went there. We deserve to be fully and finally ensnared by the cords of death and hell forever. That's what we deserve. Here's the point. I don't think Jesus is saying, don't worry, the gates won't stop the church's attack. I don't think that's what he's saying here. I think he's saying, don't worry, the gates won't stop the resurrection of my people back from the dead. Don't worry, I am more powerful than the realm of the dead. Don't worry, the domain of darkness won't hold anyone that I want to bring back to life. 
I think that that's what he is saying more specifically. The gates and entanglements of death won't stop me, in the words of Colossians, from delivering people from the domain of darkness. The gates of hell, the power of the realm of the dead, won't stop me from raising you from the dead that Ephesians 2 talks about. So what is the church? A community of people that have been raised from the realm of the dead by the power of the gospel. I mean, what an amazing thing for us to be sitting here as people who can say, I've been raised from the dead. This is not some boring religious activity we thought up. We have been raised from the realm of the dead forever to marvel at what in the world happened. How did this happen? I was dead and now I'm alive. And for all of eternity, I will just marvel at that reality, that God would resurrect me like, like that. How is this accomplished? Let's land this plane here. Verse 21. How is this accomplished? Verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. We willingly went to the realm of the dead and deserve to be fully and finally ensnared by it forever in hell. And so in wild mercy, wild grace, Jesus willingly went to the realm of the dead to rescue us. To do what he said he would do from Isaiah, why did he come? To set the captives free. To set the captives free. Jesus came to wage war against, as Ephesians says, against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers of this present darkness, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. He went to war against them to deliver you, redeem you, rescue you, set you free, bring you back to life forever. But as Acts says, Jesus died on the cross, and then Acts says God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. It wasn't possible for Jesus to be held by death. And if you are in Jesus by faith, it is not possible for you to be held by death or the realm of the dead or darkness. It's not possible because it wasn't possible for him. Jesus took the punishment for our sin that we deserve and he went to the realm of the dead to resurrect you through faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone. So what is the church? A community of people that have been raised from the realm of the dead by the power of the gospel, now united to Christ and united to one another, and now an outpost, redeemer, and the church on earth today is an outpost of the kingdom of heaven on earth, showing this dim picture to the world all around us of what life with God is like, a little taste of what the garden was like, and a little taste of glory to come already here and now. Amen.